Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We will be looking at the first 12 verses as we are following the traditional Advent readings and preaching upon them. And today we're in Matthew 2, where we will encounter the wise men who come and worship the babe, the Lord Jesus. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That might be the biggest lie ever told in the Bible outside of Satan in the Garden of Eden. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... They saw the child with Mary and his, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own countries by another way. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we do pray that you would work this word into our soul, that you would speak to us today in clear, discernible ways, that you would grant the ministry of your Holy Spirit to be powerfully expressed in both the preaching and the listening and hearing of your word. And we pray it would bring you glory, that it would bring you honor, and worship. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the writer Matthew here is picking up on a theme uh, that is prevalent throughout his gospel. Uh, Matthew confronts his audience in this passage 
with a summons to personal decision by contrasting four main characters in this narrative. This is a literary device. You have to understand that writers like Matthew weren't just historians, weren't merely theologians, but they also were artists. And they also used the gifts God had given them to paint a beautiful picture of the coming of Christ, in this case, and how people responded to uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So we have four quick sna sna uh, snapshots or vignettes of human beings that really represent human nature. We know that uh, the uh, Jews were always meant to be, according to God's covenant, as a light to the nations. That they were to take the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. Uh, that uh, Abraham's covenant included the blessings of the nation. And so there are four snapshots here. We're going to take each and look at them and see this sort of fourfold portrait that Matthew paints for us to communicate to us profound truth. And of course the four snapshots are the four points in your bulletin. The Magi are humanity under the power of grace. Herod is humanity under the power of sin. The religious elite, the scribes and the theologians, are under the power of religion. And number four, the Christ child, humanity as it ought to be in our place. And so those are four things that we'll spend our time thinking about together now. Now who are these magi? In the Greek, it's magi. We have magi as humanity under the power of grace. Matthew is uh, beginning to show us in his gospel, even by the uh, genealogies, that Gentiles are included. That the intention of the coming of Christ is to see uh, the grace of God and the word of God spread to the nations through the nation Israel. And so now we're watching a group of wise men whose adventurous story captures our imagination. Bethlehem's shepherds were by comparison uh, to a penny, as some would say. The church has never shown any real interest in their names. But the church in Christian tradition has shown interest in the names of these wise men who are three in number because of the gifts. They are given the names Casper, Balthazar, and Melchior. But who were they, really? Who are these people that show up in front of King Herod because of a star guiding them looking for where Jesus or the Messiah was? They were magi, translated as wise men. They were scholars. They were ancient philosophers. They were the pre-scientific scientists of antiquity, observing the cosmos and keeping meticulous records of what they saw. Part of what drove their interest was the conviction that events in the natural order had great influence upon human life. They believed that the heavenly world above them disclosed significant truth about the shape of history around them. These specific scholars were astronomers who dabbled in what we now call astrology. 
lest we think they were primitive by comparison with our sophisticated modern society, we should note that the popular press, newspapers that is, is much happier to give space to your daily horoscope than it is to ever give space to any daily Bible exposition. This can only be for one reason, that's what people want. These scholars had observed a star which they had now noticed, never noticed before. It had to be carrying a special message. Remember, they're astronomers and astrologers. Their research, perhaps in the great libraries of the ancient Near East, led them to the conclusion that the special king of the Jews had been born. That the king of the Jews had been born. And so they decided they would find him and worship him. But before we follow their journey, it's worth reflecting on some uh, questions. Number one, how did they know that a king of the Jews had been born? And why did they go to worship him? And what possessed them to make the wearisome journey? And how did the star make such an impact on their lives? The Hebrew Bible perhaps had given them many clues. There were a number of prophecies in the Hebrew Bible that spoke clearly. I happen to believe my personal conviction is they were Persians. And through the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem and Judah, they learned something of the Hebrew Scriptures and something of the prophetic word. Also from Daniel's time in exile, they saw something of the prophetic word and perhaps were even familiar with Balaam's prophecy, all which spoke of a star appearing in Bethlehem. Most believe, that is scholars believe, that it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that brought about uh, this movement in the heavens. But what I want to get to is not so much a description of the Magi, but what they represent. They are humanity under the power of grace. They were looking for Messiah. But they were looking for him in what would be called an illegitimate way. They were studying the stars. They were studying... Um, uh, they were astrologers. They were uh, very caught up in the, the whole complex of that. In other words, they weren't church people. These are not people who were following traditional religious paths or Christianity. These are very pagan people. And yet God in his amazing, astounding grace intersects with these people and brings them to Jerusalem, pointing a picture to the people of God in the first century that the pagans are ripe for the gospel. Right now, right now, you know people, whether they're in your family, or whether they're friends of yours, or whether they're enemies of yours, who are right now caught up in some crazy stuff. Absolute insane religious leanings and learnings, and their life seems to be moving as far away from the truth, as far away from Orthodox Christianity as is possible, and you, like me, are standing here looking at them, saying to yourself, how could it get any worse? And yet, God, on the first pages of Matthew's Gospel, shows us that no one is outside the reach of God's grace. No one. 
And what an amazing thing happens here when he intercedes on the behalf of these pagan astrologers who did not deserve this wonderful gift of grace, who were ill-deserving of it, and yet brought them to the Savior where they worshipped him and found exceeding joy. Never write anybody off. The last person you would have ever thought would have become a Christian in the first century would be Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. You know people, and I know you know people, and perhaps you're praying for people, and maybe you've given up. Have you ever, have you ever prayed for somebody so long, and finally you just said to the Lord, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. Can't pray for him anymore. Don't give up. The grace of God its reach far exceeds anything you can imagine. And God can find people. You know, everybody's in the palm of his hand. Everybody. The whole world's in the palm of his hand. And he can reach anyone, anytime, anyway, through any means available. So here we have natural revelation, the use of the stars, that is nature itself, reveals back something of the reality of its creator. And so they were star studiers and they follow natural revelation. They go to Jerusalem to get special revelation. Uh, from when they ask where the child is to be born and they find out in Bethlehem, then they go to Bethlehem and they receive special revelation, as it were, when they see the Christ child and they worship him and they give these gifts. Already hinted at in these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh are the death of Jesus Christ because those are burial spices and they're very expensive, incredibly expensive. So we see humanity under the power of grace. Uh, so the astrologers uh, as are walking illustrations of the depths and lengths and breadths and heights of God's love and his grace. And so nature can be used to bring us to church. The church's Bible leads us to Christ. God uses natural, the natural world and our experience often to convict us of our need and awaken in us longings uh, that begins with a quest to the word and ultimately directs us to the uh, material that is or the subject of the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why Christ must be preached. The Magi's worldview was one of Persia. But the root of the study of the stars and that belief that the microcosm of humanity is in a magnetic symbiotic relationship with the macrocosm of heavenly bodies. But ultimately, they were brought to the Christ child. Wise men discerned the stars. They looked for meaning. They were idolaters. They were despised. They were the least deserving guests at the birthday party of the Christ child. But Matthew is delighted. Uh, an invitation to the Magi indicates the deep, wide mercy of God. The most degraded kinds of people who fancied themselves wise but were actually fools were God's first guests at the unveiling of his Son. Do not despise people caught up in the New Age movement or wokeism or um, worshiping uh, nature and, and Gaia and Mother Earth. And uh, God may use their idols ultimately to lead them to the Word and to Christ. 
The irony is the pagans respond while the leadership of Israel does not. What happened when they uh, were led to the living Christ? Well, we notice that the Magi worshipped. They gave gifts. And being warned by an angel, uh, they found another way home. But God welcomed these outsiders and brought them inside. The second um, vignette or snapshot is of Herod, King Herod. If he wasn't a paranoid schizophrenic, I don't know that anybody could be one. I think if you Googled Her uh, Herod, uh, he would at least make the top ten in the list of original sinners. Adam would be first, but Herod's in there somewhere. He was absolutely the most threatened human being on the face of the earth. And uh, it was once said that it's safer to be Herod's pig than it is his son. Why, did that, why was that saying prevalent during the time of Herod's life? Because Herod killed ten of his sons when felt, he felt threatened that they were conspiring to replace him on his throne. Herod is humanity under the power of sin. He's a graphic representation of what all of us are. More subtly within, fallen humanity fights with a passion toward autonomy, self-sovereignty, and self-will. Herod was terrified that he would be replaced. And he guarded constantly his authority and his position. And the unbelieving heart of man, the heart of fallen man, is very much in agreement and resonance with King Herod. He was a prototype of humanity under the power of sin. He's a graphic representation of what all of us are underneath the surface. Fallen humanity fights with a passion to retain authority, self-sovereignty, and self-will. And the first reaction of raw fallen humanity to Christ is threat and then rebellion. Herod is not merely a gospel villain. He is in some sense every man. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Herod uh, is an illustration of Romans 1, 18-32. And where Paul also in Romans tells us there is no one who does good. There's no one who's righteous. No one who seeks. No one who understands. No one who does what is good. No, not one. Herod is what I am deep down inside under the thraldom and power of sin. Though original sin is covered and pardoned by God's grace in justification and wrestled and struggled with in the Christian life, it is still there within us. Martin Luther says, man is by nature able, is not by nature able to let God be God. And so Herod calls forth the religious scholars, not because he cares about going, but he wants to know where this threat to his throne is, and ultimately he will uh, commit infanticide trying to rub him out. But Herod will not have this man rule over him, ever. He wanted to preserve his self-law, his self-rule, and his own self-will. Herod was, was not ready to bow the knee to anyone. 
So Luther says man is not by nature able to let God be God. Instead he wants himself to be God and does not want God to be his God. Let God be God was his cry. Our basic inclination toward uh, self-deification is evident in the heart of Herod. He is what we become absent the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God and, and the work of regeneration in our soul. We are all curved in upon ourselves and bent away from the living God. And Herod shows us our plight and our need. And so Her Herod is the worst of us. He is the exposure of the fallen sinful heart. Those who begin by hating the child end up hurting his children. His ungodliness was the root of his inhumanity. Herod, Herod is a warning to us, a warning of what happens when we despise the grace of God. The only way we can ever come to term with our sin is to accept Scripture's revelation over our fallen human reason. The discovery that one is sinner is an act of faith. We habitually underestimate the seriousness of our sin. And Herod is a uh, glowing, well, I wouldn't say glowing, a smoldering picture of the depravity of the human heart. And so Herod becomes for us the picture of humanity under the power of sin. And sin is a serious thing. I was talking with someone recently and they said, well, you know, I, I said, I was talking to them about the need to be saved from sin. And they looked at me and said, well, you know, I'm not too worried about that. I said, no, what you need to be worried about is not only do you need to be saved from your, by, from your sin, you need to be saved from God. Because the same God that sent Jesus to save you is the same God who will judge you. Jesus will be for you either your judge or your savior. And his judgment will be true. And he will expose everything in you and judge you for it if you reject his gospel. If you reject coming to him in faith and repentance, you will forever be abandoned by God. He will turn his back on you and you will perish forever and ever and ever and ever in hell. And Herod is a picture of the kind of heart that is, the hard heart, the heart that refuses to consider the reality of God. You say, well, Pastor Tim, do you believe in hell? I believe in hell because Jesus believed in hell. And Jesus is the God-man. Do I like the fact that there's a hell? I do not. I find it, uh, at times, I, I find myself caught up in thinking about it, and it just shakes me to my core to think that anybody I would know or love or care for would ever perish when the grace of God is so profound and real for anyone. But let's talk about the religious leaders. We know that Matthew throughout his gospel is going to uh, depict the religious leaders of Jesus' day as antagonistic. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it comes across not so much as hate, but as indifference. They don't go to Bethlehem, even though they know that's where Messiah is coming. Even though three kings from the east have arrived in Jerusalem and questioned Herod, Herod calls them and gets an audience with the religious intelligentsia, and none of them, not one of them, 
takes a six-hour walk, no, excuse me, three-hour walk to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's about five miles south of Jerusalem. Nobody went. Nobody went to check it out. Not one of them. Not one of them. They knew what the Scripture said. They informed Herod what the Scripture said. But there was no need in them to pursue that avenue. Maybe their understanding of the Messiah was surely he wouldn't be born in a cattle stall. Surely he wouldn't be living in some out-of-the-way place like Bethlehem, although it had some importance in the life of the nation, but very little. And so Bethlehem, you know the word Bethlehem, Beth in Hebrew means house. Lahem in Hebrew means bread. It was a house of bread. It was a bakery. It must have been a bakery there. And so it was the house of bread. And there the Christ child is, and not one of them makes any effort to go see. Why? Because they didn't need Jesus. You see, religious people don't need Jesus. Why? Because religious people are trying to save themselves. Religious people's whole heartbeat is, and I'm speaking of religion in terms of you trying to obey God, put him in debt to you, and sort of uh, have a quid pro quo arrangement with him, whereas he will bless you if you succeed. And so God owes you certain stuff. Religious people are like the elder brother in the prodigal son narrative. Uh, the magi are like the prodigal, but the uh, religious people are the elder brother, and they don't see any, any need for Jesus because they don't see their sin. They're too busy building their way up to reach the Lord. They're trying to be good people. And if you're ever going to need Jesus, you're going to have to give up on being good people because we're not. Paul just said it in Romans, there's no one good, no, not one, that is in comparison to the standard that God requires of us. But these religious people wouldn't even make a move at all to go and check out the Christ child. Uh... We see humanity, the, uh, the uh, religious leaders, depicting for us humanity under the power of the law. They depict the religious use of lo the law to ascend to God through performance. Therefore, they had no interest in going to Bethlehem to see the Christ because they had no need of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you need Christ? Do you need Jesus? Do you? You see, being religious is natural to us. It is following the, the fallen nature of our heart. It was a three-hour walk to see him. They were deadly orthodox. That is, they knew the promise. They just didn't believe the promise. They had propositional knowledge of the Messiah, but they had no heart to pursue him. They know just enough truth to inoculate themselves from their desperate need for Jesus. Their indifference and blindness is telling and they have many, many relatives among us today. Religious people, nice people, good people, moral people who are trying their best to be good people, good religious people. But those people fall short of seeing and pursuing the Christ, the Son of the living God. A passion to see and know the child is absent and their self-righteousness causes them to have a sense of deadness. But finally, 
We see the child representing true humanity. We see the, the Christ child, the one who is worshipped and adored by the um, wise man as the true humanity and the new Israel. Now, if you study Matthew's gospel, which we're not going to do, the next sermon series I will do will be on the life of David, the life of King David from 1 Samuel about chapter 15 through 2 Samuel. I will start that soon. But I'm not going to preach through Matthew, but I'm going to tell you, Matthew does a lot of amazing things. And he begins with the genealogy, much like the book of Genesis. And then he shows us the Christ child being born and yet pursued by Herod, very much like the Pharaoh uh, pursuing and practicing infanticide in Egypt. But we see Jesus descend and go down into Egypt, just like uh, Jacob and his family did, and Joseph as well. And then we see in the Exodus, the people of God coming out of Egypt and coming toward the Promised Land. And there we see Jesus returning back, if you'll read Matthew's Gospel. Pretty soon after that, we see Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, as Israel was in the wilderness, tempted as it were, had ten tests, flunked all ten of them. Jesus successfully, as the new Israel, passed all t uh, three tests, the major tests, which were inclusive of the ten tests. And then he goes to the mount and delivers for us, like Moses on Mount Sinai, the, the law of God. And so Matthew's very conscious of what he's doing in this gospel. But he's showing us that the child is the new, true humanity. He is what it means to be the image of God in his humanity. He is the new Israel himself. So the final snapshot is the Christ child, and he represents the true humanity, the true Israel. Jesus' life, even as an infant, retraces the career of Israel in the Old Testament. It's not coincidental, but intentional. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, as Israel was of the old covenant. Israel's history was one of failure due to infidelity. Christ is the new Israel, successful because of his faithfulness. He did what Israel was supposed to do. He fulfilled all righteousness. He is what true humanity was created to be and can be found only by faith alone in him. And so the op opening chapters of Matthew, we see a, pi a picture of humanity as God intended it in the Christ child. Now, what does that mean to me? It means this. Christ fulfilled all righteousness for me and you if you believe. What does that mean? Christ is the mediator of the covenant. Christ fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf. Two reasons I can't go to heaven, and this is just down-to-earth common. Number one, I'm guilty. Number two, I'm filthy. I can't go to heaven because I'm guilty, and I can't go to heaven because I'm filthy. Jesus' death on the cross washes my sin away, and though my sins were scarlet, they are white as snow. But there's a second reason I need Jesus, and that is righteousness. I am not fit to go. I am unrighteous. I don't have the righteousness necessary to enter the presence of God. But Jesus came to earth and became, as it were, the God-man, 
God incarnate in human flesh and fulfilled the law on my behalf, took the curses of breaking the law on my behalf, died for my sins, was gloriously resurrected for my justification, and that's why I have joy standing at the birth of Jesus Christ. Because none of that could have been accomplished were he not born. And so, believing in the resurrection and sort of looking backward makes you understand the birth of Christ all the more. He had to come in my place. He had to live on my behalf. You see, if you're counting even 1% on what you produced as a person to get you right with God, you're in trouble. The only righteousness that he will accept is perfect obedience. Jesus, no man could find any sin in Jesus. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. He submitted himself to the Father because I can't obey the law and because I've rebelled against the Father rather than submitting to him. But when I look outside of myself to him and by faith cast myself upon his mercy, he takes away all of my sin. He exchanges my sin for his righteousness, and it becomes mine as much as if I lived it myself with the entirety of my being. So that's what Christmas is. It's the entry of Christ being the new covenator, uh, covenant mediator, the new Israel, not covenator. That's a strange term. Excuse me, when you get to preaching up here, words run together. But do you get what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why Christmas is merry to me. Christmas isn't just sentimental. It is that for me because I have lots of sweet memories of Christmas as a child growing up in my home. It was the happiest time of the year. But as I've grown older, it is so critical to understand that, that Christ is my substitute. The sweet exchange of the gospel is everything Christ deserves, I get. Everything I deserve, he took. And now I can look with my head held high, not because I'm righteous in myself, but because I am righteous in union with his son. And God looks at me with approval. The only person in the universe that matters likes me. He loves me. He's crazy about me. He's going to let me live with him in his presence for eternity. That's what Christmas is about. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, which one are we? Are we like the Magi who are just seekers and out looking and haven't quite landed upon the spot? Or are we like Herod? Preacher, you can rant and rave all you want to, but I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to serve myself. Or am I like the religious Israelites? Well, you know, it's nice. That he's, a, he's a good teacher and a good example to the race, and he's a good person, and I think we should honor him. But I don't need him as a savior, and I don't need his righteousness because I'm very happy producing my own. Or do I see him as the new humanity, the true Israel, who accomplished my redemption by his life and by his death? Took the covenant curses, gave me the covenant blessings because of his own obedience. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give 
as people liberated by the truth of the good news of the person and work of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.